1: In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Kimberly Brock about The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare. Kimberly is the award-winning author of The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare and The River Witch. She is the founder of Tinderbox Writers Workshop and has served as a guest lecturer for many regional and national writing workshops, including at the Pat Conroy Literary Center. She lives near Atlanta with her husband and her three children. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right
0: fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school?
1: I am great, too, and I'm so excited to speak with you. We've never spoken in person or via the
2: internet. Via the internet. I hope you can understand this Southern accent.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, of course. Well, I really enjoyed your book, The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare, and I would love to ask you a bunch of questions. But before we do that, I was going to ask you to just do a little quick history lesson about the book and the history behind the book for those that might not be familiar with it.
2: Well, there are two mysteries in this book, and I can't say that I have solved either one of them, but I like the mystery of it. I've always loved mysteries. Most of us, if you know a little bit of uh, early American history, then you probably remember the lost colony of Roanoke, our first colony that came and settled on an island, Roanoke Island and ran out of supplies. Things were bad. And, you know, as you do, the governor went back to England, left everybody. And When he came back, there was no sign of them. And it's the oldest American mystery. 1587, I believe, is when they landed. The second mystery in the novel is this sensation that occurred that's very obscure in American history. I believe it was 1937, ironically, When a man tripped over a stone on the side of the road in Edenton, North Carolina, it was inscribed with a message, and after bringing it down to Atlanta and to Emory College, where it was looked at by everybody that they could come up with across the country, um, they decided it was Elizabethan English and a message from a survivor from the colony, the governor's daughter, Eleanor White Dare. Later, those stones, there were 40-something of them that were found but they were all debunked by the Saturday Evening Post and called a big hoax. The thing about the first one is that it has never been authenticated, whether it's real or not. And I was really interested in that stone and kind of wanted to know where it had been and what had meant, if it had meant something to anybody between the time it was carved in 1591 and when it was found in 1937. So that's what the book is about.
1: So both of those mysteries are completely fascinating to me. And it's so interesting that they would find something in 1937 and then tie it back to Roanoke. But the other thing I've always found completely fascinating about Roanoke was the word Croatoan, which was carved in a tree. They don't know what it meant or what the purpose of it was still, correct?
2: Correct. They, they have lots of theories that it was um, a message for where the colonists might have gone, a Native American tribe, or maybe a village, or maybe it was a signal word that they were using to to throw off anybody who came looking for them that might be an enemy. So they don't really know. But the dare stone that was found later says there was a massacre that most of the colony had moved inland and had been killed. And that Eleanor and a few others had survived. And then from there, they disappear into history.
1: That is just crazy. So I guess that's obviously why they link it. And so it's not ever been proven that it was actually connected to them?
2: Nobody knows for sure if it was real or if it was somebody's great idea to create a spectacle. And it was found right at the end of the Depression, And so, you know, there were people were in desperate straits and looking for ways to make a buck. So there are lots of reasons that it's doubtful that it's real, but there are lots of reasons that it could be real. And it was a woman's story, and that interested me, how they disappear into history.
1: Absolutely. Well, now tell me a little bit about your book, The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare.
2: So The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare... Is a non traditional historical fiction, I think. It's a story of women and women's history, and it's a very southern story. So I, I, it feels to me more like women's fiction than historical fiction, even with all of the history that's in it. It tells the story of Alice Young, a war widow in the last days of World War II, being that that's when the dare stones were found, and her 13 year old daughter, Penn. And this is a home front story about their struggle to reimagine a world at peace when they return to this pre-revolutionary home south of Savannah, Georgia, and a forsaken family history. Alice and Penn recover this antiquarian book, and the story at the book's heart, Eleanor's tale, ties them to the oldest American history, the fate of the lost colony of Roanoke, and that more recent sensation, the discovery in 1937 of the Dare Stone, with its message believed to be from the one survivor of the colony, Eleanor White Dare. Actually, there were several survivors. And I began to imagine the story of Eleanor and what she would have told to her daughter and the larger legacy of that stone before it was ever found. And it turned into sort of a fable for how women move forward and maybe a dare to love the mystery, most of all.
1: Well, you had to do so much research, I'm sure.
2: So what was that like? It was crazy because we don't know what happened to the colony. And because, I mean, this is the late 1500s, there's so little about her father. There's so little about her. I really... In terms of the Lost Colony history, I relied on some narratives, and then I relied on some books actually about the Dare Stones. And then, you know, I felt like it's so... Something about it pulled at my heart that you have this woman, and all we know about her is that she was a girl. She got married. We know the church where she got married in London. She had a baby, Virginia Dare, who is famous. And then right. he disappeared. And I thought that's so much the story of so many women in history. That's what we that's all we know of them. And then to create a history for the descendants that I imagined for her, that's where a lot of my research took place because I read a lot about early American history and early settlements in America and trading trails and where they might have traveled and where she might have ended up, how her life might have looked. And then for each of those descendants, I think there are 16 in the book, what their lives might have looked like. Just so I could give readers a glimpse of where these women went, how they moved through the world and what their stories would have been leading up to my contemporary uh, ladies, Alice and Penn. And right there at the end of World War II. So the book is different, I think, than a lot of the historical fiction right now because it's home front. You know, I'm not writing about spies, I'm not writing about Europe. I'm writing about women who are living in this very remote town on the coast of Georgia. And so I was looking for things like, you know, how were they feeding their families? What was the community like at the time? What were they feeling when they were looking around? She's got a 13-year-old daughter, and the men are gone. You know, what's their future going to be there? And also the shipyards in Savannah, where they were building ships for for the war. So it was a lot of, uh, like a patchwork quilt kind of historical research for this book. What was your inspiration for Evertell? Well, I imagined Evertell. I think... I've had this funny conversation lately where I've talked about this and I think of the south in general as a, a big haunted house. We have so much history. We have so m- we tell as many stories in the south as we don't tell. We're very haunted by our past, where we come from, what's buried here what is an heirloom, what is a legacy, all of the things that I struggle with. My deep love for this region that I live in and the things that are painful about this place. So Evertale is all of that. It's the big haunted house in the book. Not, it's not literally haunted, but it holds all of this family history and all the things that my characters are trying to come to terms with. So that's what Evertel was, just metaphorically. And then, you know, it's a big Southern Gothic house. And I imagined it, and I imagined this cupola on top, which I'm sort of obsessed with. And then I took a trip up to the area where the messages on the Dare Stones had said Eleanor might have spent several years. And I came around a bend in the road, and there sat This house, and it was exactly as I had imagined it. And so I based the house in the book more heavily on this actual house up near Helen, Georgia. It's called the Hardman Farm. And I just, I love it. I love to go sit up there and look at it. I went and did a tour with my daughter, and it was just creepy and wonderful.
1: (laughs) I enjoyed envisioning it as I was reading because I love some of those old homes like that. So I just, was having fun kind of creating it in my
2: mind's eye. Oh, I'm glad. You know, I I thought about setting setting it there in North Georgia because of the story inscribed on the stones. And then I made some decisions to deviate from that story because we don't know if it's true. And so I the history of just how we settled and colonized here in America led me down to Savannah and to that coastal region. And so I I plopped the house down there, and it worked really well. I really love it. I wish I could go visit it there. I wish it was a real place. Exactly. You could move in. Mm -hmm.
1: So have you always been intrigued by Eleanor Dare? What set you down the path of writing about her?
2: You know, I was really young. I was a very young mother. I had two babies. My two oldest children were 16 months apart. We were living in North Carolina, and I live in Georgia now. But we had only been there, I don't know, maybe a year. And those two little kids, it's sort of isolating. You're at home, and I didn't know very many people yet. And we had a home computer. This was New, you know, the internet was new at the time, and so this is twenty years ago. And I'm sitting there; it's like having a library at home. All of a sudden, I could just look up anything. And I had started writing a little bit of fiction and trying to learn and thinking about writing a book. And I stumbled across an article about the Darestones, and I thought, how in the world? Because I'm from North Georgia. Have I never heard the history of the Dairstones? They're actually housed at Brunel University in Gainesville, Georgia, about an hour north of where I live now, just in a suburb of Atlanta. And I love to find something I don't know anything about, but I should know it. And so I just I became kind of obsessed with it and I wanted to know more about Eleanor and I couldn't find a whole lot about Eleanor, but We moved back to the Atlanta area about a year after that, and so I made an appointment with the archive room, and I hopped in my car, and I drove up to the college, and I was excited to see the stones, but I was surprised when I saw the first one how emotional I was. I I cried looking at it, and I thought, I don't even care if this is real It's part of her story because it exists. Somebody remembers her. And if I had been Eleanor Dare, a young mother by myself on the edge of a new world, my dad had sailed back to London, the massacre had occurred that the stone claims occurred, or not, just standing there at that precipice with a new baby, I don't know that I really would have believed I was going to survive. And I would have wanted something to survive. So the only thing I know that ever survives anybody is a story. And I wanted to tell one for her. I love
1: that. I would love to see those stones because that is just so fascinating. And it really is interesting as you said that. I was thinking 1937, the end of the Depression, the lost colony of Roanoke. That's been a long time. It's interesting that that would be something that somebody would zoom in on to create something fraudulent. I guess it would be worth a lot.
2: I think it's because Gone with the Wind was in the news. And so the South was like, everybody was looking at the South and it was all romanticized and wonderful, even though it wasn't. And at the same time that this happened, that the stone was found, there was a play that was being written and produced as an outdoor drama in North Carolina about the lost colony and you can still go see the outdoor drama there and it was going to bring in a lot of tourism to North Carolina so there okay. are questions about you know what the motivation might have been to just happen to trip over this stone and then bring it to Georgia there there were lots of motivations financial motivations for all of the stones they found afterward, and how sketchy they were. So I think the stones may be a man's story, and the first stone may be a woman's story.
1: That's very interesting. And I guess it is, as you said, the first mystery that took place in the United States, mm-hmm. So, which wasn't even the United States then. So right. that people do want to be able to solve it. And I'm sure so many people have tried. So this might just be one other way, like you said, to capitalize on it and to maybe try to act like it's been solved. Yes, for sure. Well, what was the hardest part about writing this book?
2: Well, it took me a really, really long time to figure out what I was going to write. How I was going to fictionalize anything to do with the stones. I wasn't sure I wanted to write and solve anything or or give Eleanor you know, a fate that I imagined. Somehow that was really hard for me to wrap my head around. Like, I just didn't know if that was, I wanted to put my toe in that. And I I finally, I think what really happened is I decided it was a mother-daughter story. This was about women. This was what you would pass down from mother to daughter to mother to daughter. And my, I wrote this whole manuscript that I gave to my agent and she said, Oh, I love this. Now where's the rest of it? Because the manuscript was all the contemporary story of Alice and Penn. And I was alluding to the book and what might be in it. And I never wrote Eleanor's story. And she said, But I know you know all of it. I know you know all of it. It's just not in the pages here. And I fought for about six weeks with that, trying to bring myself to write Eleanor's tale, and I couldn't figure out how to write it because, I, first of all, I don't, I'm not a historian at all. I am a storyteller, and so trying to write something that was a very typical historical fiction just wasn't working for me. It was very dry, and I was bored, and the readers were going to be bored, and I, I didn't care at all. But I woke up at 2 in the morning one night, and I could hear it. I could hear Eleanor's tale. And it was, it was a story. It was a fable. And I, I thought, now who's going to be telling this story? Who is this I'm hearing? And it, I realized was Alice's mother. And it would have been all of the mothers that had passed this story down as an oral history. And I thought, what are they going to know? Probably not much little bits of this, little bits of that. Some of it may have changed through the telling over the years, but Alice's mother writes it into the book. And I had to be careful that I didn't give so much detail that it wasn't believable, because at the time in the 1920s or 30s, when she would have sat down and written this story into Eleanor Dare's commonplace book that has been passed down in this family... She didn't have the Internet. She didn't have the resources that I have to learn about the lost colony or who Eleanor might have been. And I don't even have that much information now. And so I was really careful to, to tailor it so that it was something that any of us might, a story we might tell to our daughters about our mothers and grandmothers and who they were and where they came from and what's important to women to pass down.
1: Well, and your point is so valid that the story can change as it's told. I mean, it's like the game of telephone. You know, the more something is passed down, the more it inadvertently is changed.
2: Right. And we tell, we tell the parts of the story that are important to us, not necessarily the whole story, and the part that we believe might be important to the person who's listening. So I, I made a lot of choices based on that idea not necessarily based on historical fact.
1: I wondered how the format had come about. So that's interesting that your initial draft didn't really have any of the earlier time frames, and then you had to go back and kind of weave that in.
2: Right. I really made a conscious choice to start Eleanor's tale in the center of the book when Penn discovers it, because it's important to her character. It's informing who she is as a young girl and this coming of age that she's having. And her mother, Alice, is having a coming of age in some ways, dealing with her traumatic past with her own mother and just the history around them um, and their community and what those stones meant to their family and to people all around them there at Evertell.
1: And the loss of her husband. Yes. You know, trying to adjust to that and what it was going to mean for her.
2: Right. The book is really, I think, about grief. I don't think it's a sad book. I don't think it's a drag, but it really is about how do you how do you stand here in the world and lose everything? When you when you lose everything, everybody you've ever loved, everything you thought you knew to be true. And they're at the end of a war and they don't know that because they're not at the end yet. But they're standing there wondering, what is the world going to look like? What is our life going to look like? And that's the question that I was trying to answer for Alice and Penn and for Eleanor.
1: Well, and Alice is even struggling with how are we going to support ourselves? And how am I going to raise my daughter? And where am I going right. to send her to school? And all those different things.
2: Single mother.
1: <laughs> exactly. Well, what about your gorgeous cover? How did your gorgeous cover come about?
2: Oh, I love this cover. I'm telling you, I I just got my copies, my author copies, and I sleep with it under my pillow. I love this (laughs) book. It's so pretty. I love that. (laughs) And really, I wanted a book that feels like that. My favorite thing as a reader is to just find some obscure book somewhere that I've never heard of and think, ooh, what is this? It's a great big book and pull it down, and then just get lost in it. And those are the kind of books, I think, that you find yourself in as a reader. And that's what I wanted this to feel like. I wanted the book to feel like a lost book that you had found. I want it to feel like you're opening up that book that they have in the novel and finding a secret. So the cover was interesting because we... You know, when you think about Roanoke and you think about colonies, you kind of have this pilgrim image in your brain, I guess, or I do. And I, w- I was really interested in making sure that you thought about Roanoke as a southern island because it's on the southern coast. It's in North Carolina. And so they they picked the wallpaper, you know, with all the green foliage. And I was like, OK, we're getting somewhere. And I love the the book page that they have on the front. I, I love all the colors. The blue ribbon is important because there's a blue velvet ribbon in the commonplace book that's passed down through all of Eleanor's heirs. And I love that they put that on there. But we went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth about the other elements. What else should be on here? We tried flowers. We tried lots of things, and none of it seemed to work. And I said, you know there are these really hateful peacocks, just nasty, dirty birds in my book that will not give Alice a moment's peace. And they are a little nod to Flannery O'Connor. I love Flannery O'Connor. And so I said, what about the peacock feathers? What if we put the peacock feathers on the book? And when the art department did that, I did a little dance around my living room.
1: Well, they were a great ad, because I really do think your eye gets drawn to them.
2: I'm glad you like them. I do. And, you know, it's so funny
1: talking about Roanoke and it being in North Carolina, because that, for me, is one of those things that, as a child, I somehow associated it with Virginia, and I can just never get that out of my head. So every single time somebody mentions it's in North Carolina, I have to go, oh, that's right. I do know that.
2: But it throws me. It was Virginia when they landed. They named it Virginia because of the queen. Right. Yeah. So then you have Virginia, but it became North Carolina.
1: So that's why.
2: It is Virginia history. It's all mixed up. And that was one of the reasons I brought her down into Georgia. And I'm not going to, I'll give away things if I talk too much about it. But, you know, where our country colonized we weren't the first people who were here. There were trading ta- trails. There were villages. There were communities who were living and moving and changing and being fought over. And and it wasn't just the British. So I was interested in that and how these women assimilated into these different places and how how the face of things was changing over and over again. It was so fluid for a long time. We took our kids down to Savannah a few years ago, and I could see they were just like, wait, the Revolutionary War happened here? <laughs> and so I find that intriguing that even in our own state, there are things that we just don't know we have forgotten. We're we're not teaching in our classrooms. And I love that. I love to walk through that town and and think about all the things that are under my feet.
1: Well, in Savannah, they really talk about that that the people buried there are not very far under your feet. <laughs> you know, that there was a lot of history, and they talk so much about how haunted Savannah is because of all the different things that happened there.
2: It's important in this novel. I tried to incorporate that in, in sensitive ways in this book.
1: Well, that's why I thought being set near Savannah was really a great idea on your part. Well, thank you. I love it. I do too. It's such a beautiful city.
2: I miss it. I wish wish that we were back there more than we have been in the last few years.
1: Well, the last few years have been really rough for those type of things. Yeah.
2: So I've been there in my head. <laughs> exactly. Well, Kim, what have
1: you read recently that you really liked?
2: I loved Like a Sister by Kelly Garrett. And every spring, I don't know why in the spring, but the last few years, I've been reading Melmoth by Sarah Perry. I just love the way she uses language. I got to read an early copy, um, an advanced reader copy of The School for German Brides by Amy K. Runyon. And it is gut-wrenching and a really I thought it was a cool perspective. It was a unique perspective for a historical fiction, something I have not seen until this book. And then I I love to mention the books that are maybe not on the radar. This guy is new, and it's his first, his debut, and it's a gothic southern fiction with a small press. It's called The Cicada Tree. His name is Robert Gwaltney. And it's very good. He's he is going to be somebody to watch.
1: I think I need to pick that book up. He and I have connected somewhere on social media and everyone has been mentioning that book. So I do think I need to probably get a hold of it.
2: I think you do. It's very interesting. I think he's going to surprise us.
1: That's always fun. I love getting in on the ground floor is how I look at it with debut authors and then just following yeah. them on.
2: That's what I mean. Find that book that you think, huh? Look at this. Nobody else knows about this, and then it becomes yours. I love that feeling.
1: I love that feeling too. And then you know to keep an eye out for them going forward. Just kind of widens your circle. Yeah. Well, Kim, thank you so much for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast today. I so enjoyed speaking with you.
2: Oh, it's amazing. I'm. I just feel like I'm in a dream, getting to talk to you and so many others right now. It's. I can't believe it's happening. I'm so excited for Eleanor. I just keep thinking, oh, Eleanor has a story. And I hope, I hope that people tell lots of stories about Eleanor.
1: Well, you know what's interesting about that? And I was thinking earlier when we were talking about it is everybody knows Virginia Dare, but I don't think if you had asked me prior to reading your book, if I could name her mother, that I would have been able to. Right. So now you'll have all sorts of people who will know Virginia Dare's mother, Eleanor, and she will have her own story.
2: That's right.
1: Well, thanks again, Kim.
2: Thank you.